Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning, this opportunity that we have to be able to come and gather together. Lord, we come because we want to worship and praise you. Lord, we do that through singing. We do that through praying. Lord, we do that now as we open up your word. We ask that you begin to turn over the soil of our hearts, prepare us to be able to hear the message that you've already prepared for us today, Lord, that it might take root um, and grow up in our lives uh, and, and have an effect for the kingdom of heaven. So we thank you. Lord, we ask you to take this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we started the book of Joshua a couple of weeks ago, and we started the book of Joshua by reviewing the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, And we did that because Joshua starts with the people of Israel, the Israelites, on the border of the Jordan River getting ready to go. But I thought, you know, we probably, if you you weren't here, you know, two years ago when we went through Exodus and Deuteronomy, you might be interested to know that who are these people? Why are they there? Who is this guy Joshua? So two weeks ago, we reviewed all of that information. So if you weren't here, you can go and listen online and hear who the people are, why they're here. But what we find is that um, 40 years before this point, God had drawn the, 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 the Hebrews out of Egypt, brought them to a place where they were to cross over into the land that God had promised them already. In fact, had promised it all the way back to Abraham. Um, And it was like, it's time to go in. Now, at the time, 40 years before, they were anxious and nervous about that prospect of going into this promised land, the land on the other side of the Jordan. And so they sent in spies to kind of spy out the land. And the spies came back, and 10 of the spies said, "Um, yes, it is an amazing land that God has promised to give us. It's, you know, flowing with milk and honey, but there are also fortified cities and great armies, and the people are enormous, and they will squash us like grasshoppers, so let's not go. Oh, there were two spies among the 12 that came back and said, it's amazing, we have to go. Come on, God said, we're go, let's go. And that was Joshua and Caleb. But the people believed the 10. And so they decided, no, we're not going to go. And so God said then, okay, you're not going to go in. You're more afraid than you have faith in what I've said. So you're going to wander around now for the next 40 years, 38 years, 40 years until all of you adults... And it says in other places of scripture, all the fighting men, all the age, all the men of fighting age, all of you um, are dead. Um, everybody from 20 years up and uh, uh, 20 years old and older, you're going to wander around until you're all dead. Um, and, then, and then I'm going to take your children, the very children who you were afraid were going to be killed in the promised land. I'm going to take them and we're going to go in. Um, and that's what happened. Now, what we did learn in, in that time of disobedience, in that time where they were afraid to go in uh, to the land that God had promised them, God still does some amazing things for He still provides. Did you know that the entire 40 years that they're in the wilderness, He still provides manna every single morning? Did you know that he, he made it so that their clothes never wore out? They wore the same sandals for 40 years. They never wore out. How many of you have sandals or shoes that you've had for the last 40 years? Anyone? 40-year-old sandals? Just, that, just, just Bob. Bob, I might have guessed that the shirt that you have on was maybe 40 years. No. He provided for them for 40 years. Even though they were rebellious, 
he still provided for them over and over. And he gave them all these great things that he instituted, the, the sacrificial um, process, all of that. He gave them while they were still wandering around in the wilderness, waiting for that time when God would say, okay, now to your children, to this next generation, these are the ones that I will take into the promised land. And so that's where we find the, they're, they're now on there. It's, it's 40 years later, they're on the verge of going in and God comes to Joshua. Now Moses is dead. He has served God his, his entire life from 40 years until the time of his death. And God said, you've faithfully been my servant. It is now time for you to come home. And he takes Moses home. You know, Moses, he was 100, but he wasn't um, diminished. It says in his word that his eyesight hadn't dimmed and that his, his body hadn't physically diminished. He could have gone on. I was 120, excuse me. And God said, you're done. Come home now. It's now Joshua's turn. And so now Joshua, who was his assistant for 40 years, can you imagine just, like you're the assistant for 40 years? I mean, how many times would you wonder like, man, is this guy ever going to retire? 40 years, I've been waiting my turn. I, I, actually, I think we see witness in, in Joshua's entire life. It was just a series of yeses to God. It's just a series of yeses. Joshua, I want you to um, serve this man. Okay, Joshua, I want you to go out and lead this army. Okay, Joshua, now it's time for you to take over and lead the people. Okay. Yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Over and over again. We never see Joshua asking for leadership, but we see him placed in that role because he was usable by God. God says to them, now at this time, you're going to come to the Jordan River and you're going to cross over. He doesn't actually tell them how that's going to happen until a little bit later. But he says, you're going to cross over and you're going to go into this land. And I've outlined this land to you. And he says, he says there's this land from this mountain to this sea to this river to, well, I got that mixed up. But you know, it's 300,000 square miles of territory, such a large territory that he says, it's going to seem like everywhere you step your foot, I've given you that land. And what he says is, I've done it. I've already, in the language it says, I've already given it to you. They haven't gone in yet. He says, I've already given it to you. He says, it's done. To God, this is a done deal. All they have to do is go in. Okay, so there's going to be some things that they're going to have to overcome and some formidable obstacles, which we'll see as we travel through this book. But God is aware of how scary the unknown can be to us humans. So he says to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Be strong and of good courage. Essentially, he says to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says it to them three times in this one passage that we looked at two weeks ago. Three times he says, don't be afraid. But he doesn't just leave it there. He backs it up with the why we shouldn't be afraid. He says, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go in and whatever you do. Wherever you go, whatever you do, he says, I am with you. You would think that would be enough. You would think they'd be like, let's go and charge into the land. I would think that too until I look at my own life. And I think sometimes God says, I've already done this, just go. And I think, but, you know, uh, are you sure, God? Are you sure, all-powerful being who created everything by speaking it, are you sure? <laughs> when I say it like that, I think, man, I am dumb. Just go, he says, and I will be with you. Now, I think it's at this moment, actually, 
in chapter 1, in this moment where Joshua decides to send in two spies into the land. And it must be because of the way the timing works out with the three days, which we'll see later. But I think it is at this point, in verse 9 of chapter 1, that Joshua, after God has told him that you're going to go in, um, that he sends in two spies that we're going to read about today to go out and spy out the land, and especially the city of Jericho. And I actually don't know why Joshua sent in two spies, especially after he's just received this incredible pep talk from God. God says, I'm going in with you. I'm going before you. I've done it. I've given it to you. Go in. And Joshua says, great idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'll send in two spies first. I especially don't understand it when I think about how disastrous the first attempt to send spies into the promised land was just 40 years before. They sent in 12, 10 came back with a bad report and convinced everybody we should not go, and they ended up wandering around in the wilderness until they died. Joshua now, 40 years later, God says, go in, just like he said to them, and he's like, great idea, God, but first, let's send in some spies. Maybe Joshua, you know, he's 80. Maybe he, his memory isn't so good anymore. Maybe at 80 years old, Joshua's like, doesn't remember what happened the first time. It reminds me of a story of two old friends. I was sitting uh, one day talking, and the one said, you know, last week my wife and I, we went to this great restaurant. It's so good. You have to go. And his friend said, I will go. What's the name? And his friend said, you know what? I can't remember the name of that restaurant. I just, I cannot believe I can't remember. Oh, I know. What, what's that red flower that has thorns on the side? And his friend said, Rose. He goes, yeah, that's it. Hey, Rose, what was the name of that restaurant that we went to last week? <laughs> well, maybe God didn't have Joshua send in those two spies for their sake, but for our sake. And what I mean is, we wouldn't know the testimony of Rahab that we'll look at today without the report of these two spies. And so maybe these spies were sent in not for the reconnaissance that they would bring back, but so that we would be able to see the incredible witness of Rahab, which we wouldn't have unless they went. So that's where we're picking up today. Chapter 2. Verse 1, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. I wonder if he was thinking, I'm going to send them in secretly so that the people of Jericho didn't know, or if he was saying, I'm going to send them in secretly so the rest of the Israelites don't know, because the last time that happened, they, uh, it went badly. Either way, he was like, we're going to just send them in secretly. And he says, go and view the land, especially Jericho. He sends them in to spy out the land, but he really is specifically talking about Jericho, which is the first big fortified city that they're going to face once they come over the Jordan River. Jericho is actually just a little ways off the river. They can see not just the river, but the people of Jericho can see the camp of the Israelites on the other side. There's like three million of them camped out. And by the way, Jericho is on a little bit of a, a little bit of a hill, right? So the city, it looks like this. There's a little bit of a hill like this. And down here at the foot of the hill is the first wall. It's six feet thick and about 42 feet high. Then there's a space of between 15 and 30 feet of more hill. And then up here at the top is another wall, 40 feet high and six feet 
thick. And within that second wall is where the bulk of the city is. The whole city is about 15 acres square. In the middle of that wall is where the most of the city lives. But there are settlements within the two walls. So between the first one and the second one, all the way around, there are houses built in that wall and up against that wall. And that's where we're going to see that's where Rahab lives. All right, but it is a massive fortified city that has never really been taken before because of the system of walls. You wouldn't be able to get, even if you got over one wall, you'd have to go up this kind of a hill and get to the second wall, and they would be able to kind of fend you off. And so Joshua says to these guys, go in and spy out the city of, of Jericho and see what it is that we're up against, which is, if you know the story, and we're going to see when we get to chapter 6, God actually gives them victory over Jericho in a way that only God could do. No other person would have been able to defeat this city. So, but I'm not going to talk about that. You're going to have to come back to hear that or read ahead and spoil it or whatever. So he says, go and spy out the city of Jericho. So they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Okay, so I know they've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and that's a like, long time, but guys, the first thing you do is you go to the house of a prostitute. <laughs> when you come to the city, it's like... Um, now, the word harlot in, in Hebrew um, can mean prostitute, but it also can mean innkeeper. And so there are those, and in some places in the Old Testament, it does actually mean innkeeper. And so there are some that will say, well... The Bible doesn't mean that, that um, Rahab was a prostitute. They mean she was an innkeeper. And they do that in kind of a sense to sanitize her character a little bit because they're trying to pr protect the integrity of God, saying God wouldn't, you know, he's not going to do this mighty great work through someone as immoral as a, a prostitute, someone so unclean, he would never, she have, must have been an innkeeper. However, in the New Testament, Rahab is mentioned also in Hebrews and in James um, with the description of harlot. And in Greek, the word harlot, there's no mistake, it means prostitute. So there's no mistake that the reference to Rahab was that she was in the city of Jericho, a prostitute with a city, a, a house on the wall. Now, was she also an innkeeper? Well, you know, people would come and stay at her house, some for a very short period of time and some for a little bit of an extended period of time. And so in that sense, she was a bit of an innkeeper. But see, when I look at this, I'm glad to know that God decided to redeem and use someone who was unclean, because that's me. And that's probably many of you. Now, I'm not a prostitute. I was never a prostitute, but I was unclean. And God said, you know what? I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to use you in a mighty way. Um, and I love the fact that he does that. I love the fact that I don't have to sanitize the word of God or protect God's integrity. He's very capable of doing that. And yet, and, but he still says, look, I don't need perfect people. In fact, I don't know a single one. What I need is people who know they need to be forgiven. Those are the people that I'm looking for. That's who Rahab was. We're going to see this. Rahab had incredible faith. We're going to see that. She, these guys go, and they go to the house of Rahab. Now, they also probably went there, and this part does make sense to me for sure. If you wanted to sneak into a city and not have anybody know that you're there, you're not going to check into the Ritz. 
you're going to go to maybe a place where people don't talk very much about who else is there, like the house of a prostitute. Maybe they thought their secret would be safe and they wouldn't be found out. And so that's where they go. So it says they went to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. How did he know? I mean, they specifically went there so that he wouldn't be found out. And yet the king still finds out that they're there. And I'm thinking, wow, that's very strange that someone who was staying at the house of a prostitute was less than honest and trustworthy. The king finds out. He says, bring out the men. They're spies. Rahab, they are spies. They're spying out our country. It says, then the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, yes, the the men came to me, but I do not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. And where the men went out, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hidden them within the, fl- the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on her roof. So what did Rahab do in order to protect the spies? She lied. She lied. Aha! See? The Bible says that it's sometimes okay to lie. It's even good. Okay. Rahab, at this moment, is a prostitute living in a pagan city that God is about to judge because of its wickedness. If that's your standard of measure for righteousness, you may consider aiming just a little bit higher. See, the thing is, she lied, yes, okay? But that's just reporting what she did. It's not saying this is good. This is the way to do it. Well, see, she was lying to save someone's life. Is there no situation where it is okay to lie? Well, I would ask you this. How about rather than looking for a situation where it is okay to lie, you just strive to always tell the truth and see how that goes. Rather than to look for the loophole, just strive to tell the truth. Well, if Rahab hadn't lied, then those spies would have been killed. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that that would have been the case, and we certainly can't assume that and then create some kind of a doctrine around the Bible saying it's okay to lie sometimes. In fact, what does the Bible say about lying? Psalm 34, verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. That says, don't lie. How about this? Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Abomination is a bad thing. So he says lying lips are bad according to God. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 is a list of seven things that God hates. A lying tongue is on that list two times. Two times. In contrast, the second half of Proverbs 12, verse 22 says, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. 
And Jesus himself said, the truth will set you free. There's a book that you should read if you've never read it. It's called The Hiding Place. It was written by Corey Tenboom. It's about Corey's family during World War II in Holland when she and her family took it upon themselves to hide Jews in their house away from the Nazis so they wouldn't be taken away and executed. One morning, they had two Jews hidden in a compartment underneath their breakfast table. At that moment, two German officers come in through the kitchen door and say to them, are you hiding any Jews in this house? Now, everyone was caught very much off guard, but Corey's sister, Betsy, had determined that she was always going to tell the truth. So based on that and based on the fact that she was kind of caught off guard, when they said, do you have any Jews in your house? She said, yes, there's two hiding under the table. The German officer thought that she was making fun of him and searched the entire house except underneath their table. And so the two Jews hidden there were never found. So what did Betsy do? She told the truth. Did it save those lives? It did. You see how God can honor telling the truth? Yeah, Rahab lied, and it saved the lives of the spies. But it, could it happen a different way? Is God powerful enough to have saved those? Even if she had said, yes, they're hiding in the flax on my roof. Could God have saved them anyway? Of course. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. He asked that, by the way, in Genesis. He asked that of himself. Is anything too hard of the Lord? The answer is no. So rather than to look for the loophole, well, is it okay to say? I actually read an article this week from Time Magazine, and it was called um, Honesty is Not Always the Best Policy. Honesty is not always the best policy in it. And I thought, oh, I'm going to read this because I really want to know when are the times that it's okay to lie. Because um, I figured, you know, there would be examples on their list of like, you know, like when it's when you like to save someone's life or to save your own life or whatever it was. Actually, the, the, the five things on the list, they were things like um, when it's too late to change and they meant your clothes or your outfit, or, you know, if you're giving constructive criticism, or if you don't really know the person that well. Those are the opportunities when it's okay to lie, according to Time Magazine. And listen, I totally get what they're saying in some cases. Like, if someone comes up to you, like, right before they're, they're going to go out and give a big presentation to a room full of people, and they're like, how do I look? And, and you know, you're not going to say to them, oh, you look horrible, and I don't know what you're doing with your hair, but go on, go! You know, I guess in that case, don't say anything. Just, just be like, God bless you. <laughs> Look, at, here's the point, right? We can get caught up in trying to find the times when it's okay to do something that we know the Bible says not to do. Rather, just try to do the right thing. Try and be honest. Be, strive for honesty. Strive to tell the truth. And let God honor that. Let God honor the fact that you are a truth teller. Amen? That didn't sound, you guys didn't sound like you really agreed with me. You're like, <laughs> okay. Okay. So she hides them on her roof. Now, I just let me explain to you. If you're unfamiliar with the architecture of the time, they would be um, 
uh, her house would have been up against the outer wall because it had a window that went out, as we'll see later. Um, and it would have been several stories built on top of one another. And at the top, the roof was open, just like kind of a flat rooftop patio with no, no ceiling or, or walls, um, but that they would use as part of their house. And what she had done is they had gone out and harvested the flax, um, which comes in these long stalks. Right? And they would uh, set them up against each other, kind of on a, a horizontal pole, so that they're like this. They're, it looks almost like a flax tent on their roof. So that's where she would have hidden the spies. They would have just crawled into that space. And in my head, I've always imagined like a big pile of hay, and she's like, get in underneath there, you know? Um, but it really was just this like crisscross of flax stalks that they crawled into. That's really interesting because why did she have flax on her roof? I mean, it's in there. Did you ever ask yourself that question? Like, why would she even have flax laid aside? Well, flax, when you, when you harvest the stalks, if you soak it in water and then dry it in the sun on your roof, the stalks kind of crack open. And inside is this really soft kind of fibrous material that they weave together to make linen. And that's how linen is produced. Now, the more coarse at the top, kind of the, the coarser uh, fibers at the top, that they couldn't use to make linen, they would actually weave together to make twine, which then would then be woven into rope. So she has flax on her roof um, because she was also involved. She was very entrepreneurial, right? Because she was, you know... <laughs> she had a few uh, ways to make money, and, and one of them was probably to produce linen and rope from the flax that she had on her roof that she would also then dye different colors because linen would have been all just kind of like whitish, right? But they had lots of different colors, purple, yellow, orange, brown, blue, and scarlet. These are the colors that we see quite often. And they would have to take these elements like minerals or rocks or um, in this case, the red. Um, a lot of people think, and you can read this, uh, that they would make the red or the scarlet dye from this crushing up this insect. Um, and they did do that in the Bible, but it was after this time, it wasn't it. So at this time, what they were using was something called the matter plant. It had a very bright red root, and they would dry it and ground it up, and then they would mix it with wa boiling water and let it boil to really get intense, and then they would put clothes. They would immerse clothes, the, this linen, into this color, um, and this rope, whatever color they wanted, but this happened to be red, and they would immerse this red, uh, this rope, into this red dye. Um, and it, it's interesting because when you dye something red, especially with this kind of dye after it's been boiled and intensified, once it's dyed red, it can't ever change. It's red forever after that point. It can't be undyed, and it can't be dyed some other color. It's red forever. And keep that in mind. So she's got them hidden up there on, his roof, on her roof. She says, the men that went, Then the men that pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before she lay down, she came up onto the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. All right. That's huge. Okay, if you're not seeing that, I want to point this out to you, that she says, I know the Lord. She uses the word Lord. It's in all capital letters in my Bible, if it's in yours too, probably, because she uses the Hebrew word Yahweh to refer to what they called God, she says, I know that God has given you the land. Now, the reason why that verse, that statement that she makes blows me away is because it demonstrates that Rahab, this pagan prostitute in Jericho, has more faith than all of Israel because she says, I know that God 
has given you the land. She believes it so deeply that she just lied to the king to save these people. The Israelites, they believe kind of, but they keep sending spies in to see if it is as the creator of the universe has said it is. And she says, I know that he has given you the land. And then she says that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. She says, we have heard of you. She's going to go into more detail in about a minute. We've heard of you, and we are afraid of you because of your God. I like that too because it's in fulfillment of what God said to them. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. I'll read this to you. This is after, again, they've wandered through. They've come to the place of crossing over into the Jordan again, and God comes to them, and he says to them, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. God said, that's what will happen. When you go, you're going to find out that they're afraid of you. What does Rahab say? We heard of you. We're afraid of you. In fact, she's going to say this. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt. Uh, when was that? 40 years ago, 40 years ago, because remember, they're not that far away. 40 years ago, they heard. I don't know how old Rahab is. Maybe she was born. Maybe she had heard it from her parents who passed it down to her. But they said, we heard how God dried up the Red Sea for you to cross over and how it came washing back in and destroyed the Egyptian army. We've been afraid of you for 40 years. Where have you been? And they would have to answer, well, we've been afraid of you for 40 years, so we've been wandering around in the wilderness. Bing. And then she says, and then, and then what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Org, whom you utterly destroyed. This event that she talks about happened a year ago. So she says, we heard um, about what happened 40 years ago. We heard that you defeated these two just like massive kingdoms, um, that, God, that God did this. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And she says, look, we heard about it. Listen, they didn't just hear Okay, remember where Jericho is, is perched up on this kind of little bit of a hill, and then, you know, there, if they were up on the wall, looking out at this army that they had heard, oh my gosh, they're on their way here, because, oh, they just wiped out the Egyptian army, and there's three million of them, by the way, and they're on their way, and now they're there, and they, they keep circling the area, and they're watching them for 40 years. The entire time, what are they seeing? Every single night, a pillar of fire going around with the Israelites. God gave them a pillar of fire to lead their way in the nighttime, and he never took it away until they crossed over the Jordan River. Forty years. They're looking at a pillar of fire. Now, I don't know about you, but that would freak me out a little bit if I was like, why is there a pillar of fire coming from heavens down into the camp of these people who I've heard are going to come over here and take over? That would be scary. Um, for 40 years, and it says that we've heard of you, we've seen this pillar of fire, we knew you were coming all this time, we don't have any confidence 
anymore. We're afraid. Now, here's the thing. There's a big difference between all of the people who live in Jericho and Rahab, and that is they were afraid unto death. She saw this, and she saw an opportunity to be saved. And that's the direction that she goes in. She says, oh, everybody else sees this, and they're afraid. I see this, and I'm going to get saved. This, I'm going to find a way that I have an opportunity to be saved here. And so she goes on along that way. But she says, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and on earth. Basically, she says, there is no God or collection of gods greater than Yahweh. Then she makes her petition. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me true, a true token and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Rahab says, everybody else is afraid to die. I see an opportunity to be saved here. And so the men answered her, our lives for yours if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall where she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountains, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterwards, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless... When we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in your window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household into your home, so shall it be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head, and, he, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him." All right, so they say this. Yes, we will make sure that you are treated kindly when we come in and take the city, but only if you take this scarlet rope that you've let us down out the window with, tie it around your window as a sign to those who are coming in to kill everybody. If you do that, everyone in your household will be spared. What does that sound like? Passover, doesn't it? When they were still in Egypt and God said to Moses, have everyone take a lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and paint its blood on the doorway, and then everyone who is inside that house, covered by the blood, will be spared from the angel of death who passes over. But anyone who is outside of that house, his blood will be on his own head. That's exactly what they tell her. Take this scarlet cord. It didn't have to be a scarlet cord. It could have been blue or purple or red in this, for the sake of her dying it. No, this was a scarlet cord for the sake of it lining up so perfectly with Passover. When they said, get your household into your house, mark it with this scarlet cord so that when the instrument of death comes upon your city, all who are in your household covered by this scarlet cord will be spared. interesting thing, as I mentioned about dyeing clothes and ropes red, was once they were covered with the red, they couldn't be uncovered. They couldn't be undyed. The Passover itself is a symbol that says that we are washed 
in the blood of Christ. The Bible says that we are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that is what makes us righteous before God. There is nothing that we can do in our own power that makes us righteous before God other than to be washed in the blood of Christ or otherwise dyed in scarlet, never to be undyed again, never to be Um, undyed, we are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is a message that goes all the way through the Bible until we get to Jesus Christ himself, who literally poured out his blood so that we might be saved. This is a message from the beginning all the way to the end. And here they say, you will be saved from destruction by the, the mark of the scarlet cord. Now, what, a, what Rahab has to do is, number one, believe them, right? She has to believe in their words enough that she actually will do. She has to say, oh, I believe what you say, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, and I'm going to put the scarlet cord in my window, and now I've got to go and tell my family about what I was just told. I have to go back and tell my family, listen, destruction is coming, In order to be saved, you have to come in and be under the protection of the scarlet rope. And probably that was a hard conversation to have with your family because they were like, "Uh, that sounds like crazy talk. You you know, I don't, you know that, what you're saying right there, that sounds crazy. Have you joined a cult? Maybe, maybe they said that. You You know, see, because it seems a lot like what many of us have had to do or may have to do as well. So if you're a Christian here today, you've been covered by the blood, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Essentially, you're the one who has been marked by the scarlet cord, saved from destruction. But destruction is coming. And so now it's to us to go and talk to our mothers and our fathers and our sisters and our brothers and our friends and our coworkers and our families and say, look, if you want to be spared from destruction, then you need to come in and be covered by the blood of Jesus. But if you don't want that, then your blood will be on your own head. And when you do that, people will say, you sound crazy. You sound like, you know, what, have you been brainwashed? Make a sign or something. Make, give me, have you been brainwashed? Now, some people will believe. And they'll say, oh, I, I want to know more about that. When we go to the Godmobile, Cesar mentioned it. Here's a plug for the Godmobile. You have three more days to register, I'm just saying. When we go to the Godmobile, we can't call out to people. We can't be like, hey. Come over here and talk to me about Jesus. We have to just sit there like this. But we can sit there and do this. (laughs) You can do that. And then and then and then people come over and they want to they want to talk to you about heaven. It says two question quiz, are you going to heaven? And people are like, I was going to the beer tent, but I really do want to know about heaven. And I mean literally the beer tent last year was right across, and people were still coming to us. And saying, well, I want to know if I'm going to heaven. And then it's a very simple conversation. And some people receive it. And they like enter into the, the righteousness of Christ through his blood. And it's like, that's amazing. And I can't believe it every time, honestly. I'm such a doubter. What's wrong with me? And other people are like, eh, no, I'm good. I'm good, right where I, I'm good right where I am. The funny thing is, you know what? Sometimes, like a couple years ago, there was like a 12-year-old boy at the window, and his grandma was like, come on, let's go. And he's like, no, grandma, hold on a minute. Like, he's telling his grandma, wait, I want to hear this. Wait, I want to hear this. His grandma's like, come on, the beer tent. You know, no, she probably was getting, you know, it was probably rides or something. But, but he was interested. He wanted to know, and he was saying, grandma, wait, grandma, wait. 
he ended up being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that night. Like, I don't know what the deal is with his grandma anymore. I don't know. But I know that kid's eternity was changed. So Rahab has to go, and she has to tell her family, you have to come. I don't know when destruction is coming. I can't tell you the day or the hour. But I know it's coming. You need to come, and you need to be covered by this red cord. Now, I happen to know, because I read ahead, that they all come. It says in Joshua chapter 6 that her mother and her father and her brothers and her sisters and all of her household are spared from destruction. So they actually hear the message and they go with her and they stay in her house until the time of destruction comes and they're saved. You know, there's another story that you might be familiar with that someone reminded me of this morning. It's the story of Lot. See, Lot, Abraham's nephew, finds himself living in the city of Sodom. And two angels come to Lot one day and they say, Lot, you need to collect up your family because God is going to destroy this city because it is exceedingly wicked. And so Lot says, okay, well, let, me, um, let me go and get my, um, tell my sons-in-laws and my daughters that they need to come into the house with us and then flee tomorrow. So he goes, it says um, in, in Genesis, it says that he goes to his sons-in-laws and he tells them that two angels came and they said that the city is going to be destroyed. We need to come with me so we can flee the city. And do you know what it says about his sons-in-laws? They thought he was joking. It says that. They thought he was joking. Like, oh, lot. <laughs> Good one. And they stayed where they were and guess what happened? They were destroyed. Lot, his wife, and his other two daughters made it out of the city because they believed what they were told and they ran. His other daughters and their husbands were destroyed in the city because they thought he was joking. They missed the opportunity. So she says in verse 21, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the cord in her window. She believed them. And she went and she told her family, and they believed her, and they came. And, and, and by the way, even though she's going to tell them, go out into the wilderness and hide for three days while they're looking for you, because after three days they won't be able to, they'll give up, and then you can go back to the camp. Even though she knew that they were going to hide three days, she did not know when they were going to come and take the city. So what she was required to do was to stay in a place of preparedness from that point forward. She did not know the day or the hour that the destruction was going to come, but she needed to live in a state of readiness in her house with the scarlet cord. And that is where we are right now. It says that we are living in a time when we do not know when Christ will return, but it is eminent, and he will return. And so we are called to live in a state of readiness. We looked at that in Matthew, remember? There's a couple of different parables that he tells about living in a state of readiness, ready for him to come back at any time. This is exactly where Rahab and her family are. She's got them all in her house. Can you imagine your entire Family. Rick, can you imagine your entire family living in your house? <laughs> with, with no idea when the end will come, but that it will come. And she's living in that place of, of readiness. 
It says that they departed and they went to the mountains and they stayed there for three days until the pursuers returned. And then the pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountains and crossed over and there came to Joshua the son of Nun and told them all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, the, truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. They come back and, and Joshua's like, guys, Give me a report. What did you find? And they, and they did not come back with schematics of the city. They didn't come back with a plan on how to take it. They came back and said, they're afraid of us because of God. And Joshua's like, praise the Lord, let's go. But I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, three days, right? Why is it three days? God could have said to Joshua, tell everybody we're going tomorrow. Get your stuff ready. We're going tomorrow. But he said, we're going to wait three days. And I kind of threw it out there and changed it. Like, why do you think he told them to wait three days? And I have a thought, and you can have other thoughts. So please share them with me later if you have another idea as well. But this is what I think, is that God knew of a woman named Rahab who believed and needed three days to make that confession of faith. And so God, in his compassion, holds off the entire nation of Israel from coming over the river and taking the city for Rahab's sake and the sake of her family, because that's how God is. God says, oh, I know she's a prostitute. I know she's unclean, um, but she believes. I'm going to redeem her. I'm going to save her. I'm going to save her family, even though I have to have my people sitting here for three days looking at, by the way, an overflowing river that they were told they are going to have to cross without being told how they were going to cross it. And God said, just wait. I've got something going on over here that you don't know about, but it's important. She's important. You're important to God. You're known to God. You are loved by God. And even if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what I think or feel, the things I say. And you're right, I don't. But I know that God does, and he still loves you and wants to redeem you. Three days, man. They come back to Joshua and they say, come on, let's go. Joshua's going to get so excited, he's going to get the entire camp up and they're going to go down and they're going to get on the edge of the river and then he's going to say, okay, God's going to have us cross this incredible overflowing its banks, Jordan River, which we will talk about next time. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I can't wait because the crossing of the Jordan River is one of my favorite stories and I can't wait to talk about it. So much good stuff in there. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The story of, of the example of the redemption that is extended to us is throughout the entire Bible. It's demonstrated through Passover. It's demonstrated through here. But the essence of it is the blood of Jesus Christ is what washes us and makes us righteous before God. If you don't have that, you need it. If you don't have it when destruction comes, whether it's through your death or whether it's through his return, your blood is on your hands. And you don't want that. So please, please do what Rahab's mother and father and brother and sister did and say, okay, let me come in. Let me hear what it is that you have to say. 
if, if that's, you're feeling that today, then I would, I would ask you to come and find me or Cesar or Jeff or one of the, anybody else, and say, look, how do I get in there? How do I enter in there? How do I become redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ? I want that. Please come and find us and say that. And it's as easy as saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I realize I can't do it on my own. I can't do it. I know that now. Forgive me, Lord. That. And then you can come and get baptized down at the beach. I mean, you don't have to. But wouldn't that be cool? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you so much for redeeming me, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for using me. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do so. It's what a pleasure, what a privilege to be a tool in the hand of the creator of the universe. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that you go before us in wherever we go and whatever we do. Lord, I thank you for the reminder that even though we are often rebellious, you still provide, you still take care of us. Lord, you still love us. Lord, thank you for the reminder that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to you, Lord, but that you'll do it. All we have to do is come. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray as we go out of here today, these things that you've said through me today, Lord, would land on the hearts of those who are here who need to hear, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray um, for the prayer outreach this Saturday, Lord, that uh, you would use that as a way to just draw people into a close relationship with you, that they know they can have it, Lord, they can call out to you and that you hear them.